0: Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning, and once again we just bow before you and we ask for your sustaining grace and empowerment as we would seek to exalt Christ, whether it be through hearing songs that exalt him or singing songs that exalt him, studying your word together, interacting with each other. We want to live lives that are honoring to Christ, who is the King. We would ask you to help us to do that even now. In his name we pray, amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you a very important question. That question is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? It's an important question because the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 3 that the gospel is the most important thing in existence, What is the gospel? If you are a Christian, you should be able to answer that question. If you are not a Christian, perhaps you can answer that question. Hopefully today will help you to be able to answer that question. Well, while we should be able to answer it if we're Christians, and while it's the most important thing in existence according to the Bible... I want to give you a sampling of answers I've heard to the question, what is the gospel? The gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel is following the golden rule. The gospel is loving God and loving your neighbor. The gospel is that good Christians go to heaven when they die. The gospel is following the example of Jesus such answers we might expect to hear on jaywalking on the tonight show or if that doesn't strike a chord with you culturally bill cosby's kids say the darndest things but not from people who are really christians those answers are in another time zone apart from what the gospel is and yet Time and time again, when you ask someone, what is the gospel, they give those kinds of answers. Professing Christians give those kinds of answers. It gives us a bit of an indicator of just what kind of a day we're living in. Where the very thing that makes Christianity Christian, which is the gospel, is something we can't even define in the most simplest terms. The gospel is the good news... That God saves sinners based upon the perfect work of His Son. The gospel is that God saves sinners based upon the perfect work of His Son. That is the gospel. Now, I know that there's more detail to the gospel, absolutely, but the gospel is not about us trying to follow Jesus as good as that might be. The gospel is not us trying to follow the golden rule as good as that might be. The gospel is completely separate from anything that you do. It is that God saves sinners based upon the perfect work of His Son and He calls everyone to believe in Him. That's the gospel. Well, thankfully we have a book like Romans. And if you have your Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Romans. We've been studying Romans. And Romans is a book given to us by God to explain the gospel. Interestingly enough, it was written to people who were, in essence, new Christians. So it shouldn't be that difficult for us, even though we have to engage our minds. It's meant for people who are like you and people who are like me and people who are less mature uh, than some. It's meant for regular people, though. It's not meant for theologians so that we would understand the gospel, so we would be able to give the right answer, and we would be able to embrace it with our own lives and our own hearts. And what Christians have been finding over the years, for years and years and years, as they study Romans, and specifically as they do what we've been doing, as they study Romans 1 and they study Romans 2 and they study Romans 3 and they study Romans 4, for centuries now, Christians have been boiling it all down in simplified terms and they've been saying the gospel is that God saves by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. That is not a mantra that I came up with. That is not a saying that I came up with. That is what Christians have been walking away with when they've done serious and thoughtful study of Romans now for years. God saves by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. And that's what we've been seeing. We've most certainly been seeing it as we've been looking at this text of Romans. It's abbreviated, yes, but we've been seeing it. Let's look at just a sampling this morning as we sort of get ready to, to move on to new ground. But look at chapter 3, verse 24 with me. And let's just see how we see grace uh, all over. We see faith all over. And we see the perfect work of Christ all over. In verse 24 it says, Being justified, that is declared perfect, as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or a satisfaction in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be, that God would be just or righteous and the justifier, the one who declares righteous, of the one who has Faith in Jesus. 3.28 says, For we maintain that a man, context of Romans 3, a sinful man, a sinful human being, is justified, declared righteous. How? By faith apart from works of the law. Chapter 4, verse 5, we saw last time. I just can't help but highlight it because it is so profound, says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited as righteousness. The gospel is all about God's grace, so God gets the credit. It's all about God's Son, so God gets the credit. It is all about applying or personalizing the work of the Son, not by what you do or by what I do, not even by following Him, but personalizing what He has done for me through faith. I make it mine, if you will, through believing in Him, trusting in Him, depending upon Him. And so we can know what the gospel is. And it becomes rather clear in Romans 1, 2, and 3 what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. But then we get to chapter 4. And we have objections. And if you've ever communicated to someone with any kind of clarity how salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and you explain that in any kind of detail, with any kind of clarity, you know that it strikes a nerve. You, you, you know that there are objections. There are questions that come about. In fact, I would encourage you to ask questions about that. It's important to ask questions about that. Uh, The antagonist is going to ask questions and really question that and they're going to have a big problem with that. But, But I think it's helpful that all of us would stop and say, well, I have a question. If it's all of God, everything that He has done, well then what about... Surely you can come up with scenarios. Surely as you read your Bible, you'll have scenarios and you'll have questions. It's important you ask the question so that you can answer the question. I love Romans 4 because the Apostle Paul poses the question because we're all thinking it or at least people are thinking it if they haven't already thought through it and then answers the question. It's wonderful. It's helpful. And it doesn't negate Romans 1, 2, and 3. It actually, by answering these questions, it supports Romans 1, 2, and 3. Well, there are two objections we're going to look at this morning in verses 9 to 17. Two objections, you can paraphrase these however you'd like to, but let me give you them uh, in a couple of statements. Objection number one to the fact that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is this. But what about divinely mandated acts of obedience? What about divinely mandated acts of obedience? Now, I've never heard anyone ask it quite like that, right? I'm not sitting at coffee with someone or grabbing something to eat with a friend, and they say, oh, yes, but what about divinely mandated acts of obedience? So you write it however you want. But people say, well, but what about things that God tells us to do? I mean, how can it be only by grace and only through faith and only in Christ? Because the Bible is filled with commands. And so how do you, how do you figure out how the commands fit and things that God says to do with this grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone thing? That, that is a very important question. The second objection is like the first. But what about obedience to God's law? What about obedience to God's law? So the first one is in verses 9 to 12. The second objection is verses 13 to 17. And if they sound a lot alike, it's because they are. If you can answer the first one, you answer the second one. If you answer the second one, you can answer the first one. Essentially, he's dealing with the same issue. But what happens is, this is such a big deal that he's got to answer it every which way but sideways. He wants to make sure we got this down and figured out, answering the objections, but he basically gives the same answers. Like I said, no one's ever asked me in this formalized way what about divinely mandated acts of obedience? But people ask these kind of questions all the time. And again, if you share the gospel with people, and if you make it as clear as it needs to be, if they're not asking it, they're thinking it. Right? What about obedience? What about what I'm supposed to do? Maybe you're even thinking, what about obedience? I don't even know if I understand the gospel yet. It's a good place to be. So you can find Answers. So this is important today as it was when this book was first written without any question. Let's go to number one. Okay, you tell me three chapters plus it's only by grace, only through faith, only in Christ. What about those things God commands that we do? Aren't they important? Surely they're important. I thought you believed the Bible. And there's commands all over the Bible. You're just picking and choosing? Well, let's see. Verse 9 it says, is this blessing, and we have to draw upon what we looked at last time, verses 6 to 8, it's talking about the, the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of salvation. So is this blessing of salvation, that is free, then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? Now, just jumping in without any Bible knowledge, you think that's a pretty weird question, right? Because to us, circumcision has nothing to do with religion. Circumcision is what is normally done with male babies. The doctors just, they talk about doing the circ. And they come in and they're going to do the circ, you know, and and it's done and over and take them out of the room. I don't want to hear the crying. Um, Too much pain thinking about what's happening there to my little baby boy. Well, enough said. But in the Bible, it's a religious issue because God commanded Abraham to be circumcised. He commanded Abraham to be circumcised so that he would be different than all of the other pagan nations. So then Israel would then have mandated circumcision as a sign that they belong to God. They are people of the covenant. And so circumcision is commanded. It is not an option. It is a religious mandate. And so the question would be, well, then what about circumcision? You keep telling me faith alone, grace alone, all this business. What about these things like circumcision? For the sake of time, I'll just reference Genesis 17, but you would want to write it down, maybe even in your margin. Genesis 17, says, God speaking, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. This is not an option. This is not if you feel led by the Spirit, Abraham. <laughs> this is a mandate from God. You are to be circumcised. You must be circumcised. And again, the questioner is saying, see, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Circumcision is a great example. It's a great case in point. Look at Abraham, after all. I thought you said you believed the Bible. Well, before we move on and see the question answered, I have to ask you, have you ever met anyone, as you're explaining the gospel, making it clear, have you ever met anyone who says, I've got an objection. What about circumcision? I've never met anyone like that. Not in Omaha, Nebraska. It could happen. I've never met anyone like that on on other continents. But I've been on continents. I've been in countries where they could ask that question if we talked long enough. I bring it up because, in a sense, you could put any divinely mandated action in here as far as principle is concerned. He's using circumcision because that was the big one for the Jews. But you and I can think of other things that God says we are supposed to do, we must do, that people want to use as objections, and they want to say, yes, it's faith, yes, it's grace, yes, it's Christ, and it is baptism, right? That's the elephant in the room. That's the big one. I know it's the big one because Omaha is the last time I checked, which is a while ago, is roughly 60-plus percent sacramentalist. And what I mean by that is they think sacraments, like baptism, are required for salvation. They are required to earn God's righteousness. And so for practical purposes, even though that's not the issue here, it is a divinely mandated act of obedience, and people are thinking it all the time can't be by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, because I must be baptized if I'm going to have enough righteousness before God to get into heaven. This is very relevant. It's very important. Especially where we live and where we function. Well, here comes the answer. Verse 9, he begins answering it by saying, at the the latter part of verse 9, For we say... You might want to even write in your margin there, Romans 4, 3. We say again, he already gave this answer. He gave this answer in Romans 4, 3, which is a quotation from Genesis fifteen six. For we say, quoting Genesis 15, 6, and I've quoted it already once and I'll do it again. Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. You know how it is when you're having an argument with someone or a debate with someone. You give the right answer to their objection and then they ask it again, maybe a different way, and you give the same answer because it was right the first time, so it's right the second time. And the apostle Paul's given the same answer a second time because it comes back to how did Abraham you want to use Abraham as, as as the paradigm, which he's a great paradigm to use? How is it that Abraham was righteous in the eyes of God? How was righteousness credited to him? Was it by believing in God and circumcision? That's the question on everybody's mind paul says i'll tell you what i told you the first time faith was credited to abraham as righteousness there it is faith and only faith brings righteousness to abraham it was all of god abraham trusted god and god he takes god at his word and god credits him with righteousness it's not by works it's only by grace and it's only through faith it couldn't be clearer there but now he's going to take the argument to another level because he knows that people still have things on their minds, as you might have things on your minds, as people you talk to have things on their minds. All right, I answered it the way I answered it the first time, but let's take it a little bit deeper with another question, verse 10. How then was it credited? Tell me more. Let's go deeper into this. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Stop there and, and, and just acknowledge that is a great question. That's a great question because now we're getting at the crux of the issue. I mean, I mean, this is the question of questions in one sense because it's dealing with how does faith relate to what? Works. Faith and works. H- how is it that faith and obedience, faith and works, how do they relate? This is huge on so many different levels. And, you know, if I can, let me pretend like I'm more naive than I am. And, and, and say, you know what? If we could answer this question, I mean, we would practically solve the problems of the world. I mean, if you, if if God would be so gracious as to answer this question, I mean, if God would only answer this question in a clear way, I mean, we 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 would settle this debate once and for all, and we would have everyone know, especially people who say they believe the Bible that salvation is only by grace, only through faith, wouldn't we? Oh, someday maybe God will answer that great, great profound question. Well, He does. <laughs> and thus in my notes and big font it says sarcasm. He answers it. Can you believe it? Uh, how then was it credited? While well, He was circumcised or uncircumcised? Verse 10 goes on to say, Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Just in a good punchy way, Paul answers the question. Which he already answered. How was he circumcised? Or how was he given righteousness? Circumcised, uncircumcised? The answer is uncircumcised. He was credited with righteousness before he did anything. See, they want to bring up Abraham. As the paradigm, as I said already. And 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 somehow they think that that's going to go against Paul's argument. He's going to be the exception. And Paul's saying, in effect, I'm so glad you used Abraham, as I mentioned last week. He's a great example. He's a great example because you know what? He had righteousness in the eyes of God, just like I've been talking about in Romans 1, 2, and 3. He had it by faith, not by his works. It's a simple matter of chronology. While circumcised? No, not then. But while uncircumcised. Genesis 15, belief for righteousness. Genesis 17, circumcision out of obedience to God. Which came first? You know, again, I went to public school, but last time I checked, Genesis 15 is before Genesis 17, right? Yes, he obeyed. Yes, he did the right thing. Yes, he was circumcised as God commanded, but not to gain righteousness. He believed to gain righteousness. What's interesting about that span of time, scholars would debate about this, at least 14 years passes between that time. That's the conservative side. 14 years! On the on the bigger side, Jewish rabbis would tell us twenty nine years. You see, it becomes really clear: belief for righteousness, that God is going to give him the righteousness he needs because he doesn't need it to be in a right standing before God. Circumcision, obedience to God. Maybe twenty years space. Just it doesn't get any clearer what's happening here. Well, just momentarily, he, he answers the question, then really, well, then, then why circumcision? We don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but look at verse 11 where it says, and he received the sign of circumcision, that's Genesis seventeen eleven, a seal. So it's called a sign. You might want to circle that. It's called a seal of righteousness. May want to circle that of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. The faith was, while uncircumcised, or that's where the righteousness came from, from God. and then the circumcision came as a sign. The circumcision came as a seal. The sign is this, this external mark of authenticity, we might say. The seal, again, is showing that, that the letter, if you will, is authentic. As the, the, the letter is sent by someone, perhaps a dignitary, what are they going to do to show that it really came from them and it wasn't uh, somehow um, for, uh, counterfeited? He's going to melt the wax or whatever they're going to use and take the, the, the signet ring and press it on there to show that it is sealed. It's the external mark showing authenticity. Now, we could go off on this and we probably shouldn't because I don't think he's even wanting us to go this far into it. But what do you do when you get the official letter? You see that it's got the, the external seal, but that's not what's of value. You uh, let the seal fall by the wayside is what is far secondary, although it was important because it showed that what was inside was legitimate. You look at what's inside. The weightiness is, is actually in the letter. Oh no, the weightiness actually is in the author who wrote it. But the external seal is not... We don't throw the letter away and say, oh, let's look at the seal. When we put the focus on the external seal, we pervert the whole thing. The focus ultimately is on the author, and the seal points to the author, and it would ultimately, if we use the analogy at least, it would point to God and what God had done for him. Well, also, almost as an aside, I think he wants to show the wisdom of God and what he's done, By using Abraham in this way, having faith come first, bringing righteousness from God, then the external. He digs a little deeper in verse 11 to just to show what God did through Abraham. It says in verse 11, So that he might, Abraham, be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. See, what he's doing is, is God in his way, he's just showing how wise God is here. By having Abraham justified before circumcision, which is a Jewish mark, he shows everyone the way to God, not just the Jews. And the way to God is belief for righteousness. And it shows Jew and Gentile that's the only way to God, belief for righteousness. If it would have been the other way around, Abraham could have perhaps in some way or another, even though it doesn't even work, be the example to the Jews. But then what about the Gentiles? He's shown to be the example to everyone. Verse 12 then elaborates and says, And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So again, God in His wisdom chose Abraham and He chose to make Abraham His to give Abraham righteousness not by what Abraham did but by trusting in God, by belief so that Abraham can be the example. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, you want to know how to be right with God? It's not through circumcision. It's not through external acts of obedience. It is by trusting and depending upon God and God alone. All of this goes back to what we call the Abrahamic Covenant. You can take the time, maybe at a later time, to look at Genesis 12. You no doubt want to write it in your margin. All the stuff he's talking about in verses 11 and 12 ties back to the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. You see, he's showing everyone, if you will, Jew and Gentile, how to get to God, how to have a right relationship with God, and it's through faith. Then we move into the New Testament in Galatians. You can write down Galatians 3 8. He's quoting the same passage in Genesis 12, showing his connection even to Christ. Abraham is the example. He is the example because he believed God, God credited to him his righteousness. And I can look at you and say, look at Abraham, he's the example. And I can look at a Jew and say, look at Abraham, he's the example. And if you have Jews and Gentiles, you've just included everybody on the planet. The way to God. It's always been the way to God. Always will be the way to God. Not faith in works, not faith in circumcision, not faith in baptism. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Abraham doesn't take away from that. He actually is the case in point. Right? Makes sense? It's all by God's grace. And Abraham shows us that. He's not an exception. He's actually an example. Let's move on to a second objection that comes about, which is really like the first one. But what about obedience to God's law? It's, just, it's the same thing. And I think it's probably because this is just how we are. I mean, as fallen human beings, what do we do? We, we have a constant stranglehold on god and his glory and we want to get there ourselves and we want to do it ourselves it's not just the american way it's just the fallen sinful human way we want to get our grubby mitts on the glory of god and somehow show through what we do we can earn favor with god never mind what god has said already about us that we could never do it in a bazillion years or lifetimes there's something in us that, that, that it is tied to our sinfulness that we want to show and say we can do it. When God has said, I and I alone can do it, it's only by grace. We, we in effect, say, you want to bet? I can do it. And so that's why I think you have time and time again in the Bible, the reiteration, the reiteration, saying it another way, saying it another way, saying it another way, because there's all, there are always these objections Because the sinful human heart always wants to play a part in salvation. So you're not going to learn anything new in one sense now because he's essentially saying the same thing. Look at verse 13 where this comes up. Not in the form of a question, but really he's addressing a question. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world, this is back to Abrahamic covenant, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. I think the NIV does a a clear job at the end, even though it's not as literal, it's a good explanation. The end reads, the righteousness that comes by faith. Because the faith is not the righteousness. But what I want you to see in verse 13, I underlined law and I underlined faith. Because that's what we're meant to see. Those are the contrasts. Did did all this come to Abraham through law? No, it came through faith, and the faith is what brings the righteousness. How do you get your righteousness? By obeying God. No, you get your righteousness, which you need, by trusting in God for the righteousness that you need. It's always getting it clear, simple, to the point. Before moving on, I, I might want to just remind you of the context of Romans. As an aside, Romans 1, 18 to chapter 3, verse, oh, what is it? 19, 20. Depravity, 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 depravity. What we've been learning is biblical anthropology, the study of humanity. And we've seen Sin, 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 sin. sin. to the point where it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, I keep mentioning it because it summarizes the whole thing really. No one does good. No, not one. No one is righteous. No, not one. You see, if we could just keep that in our minds, that would end the debate. Because as soon as I think, if I keep God's law, then he will accept me. I've just shown that I forgot about biblical anthropology. No one does good, no, not one. There is none righteous, not even one. I can't keep God's law. This whole thing is ridiculous. I've way overestimated myself. I've way overestimated other people. If it is up to me in obeying God's law, then I, I have to call God a liar and say, I'm not as sinful as you say I am. It can't be done. So even though he doesn't mention it here, I just can't help myself because we've been looking at this according to the flow of Romans 1, 2, and 3 and say it is absolutely unthinkable and ridiculous to think somehow we earn righteousness by law. And if we could just remember a biblical anthropology, this would never happen. And by the way, when religions, even those who hijack the name Christian, want to say it's faith and works, grace and works, as far as I know, never Ever, ever, does that ever come from anything that looks even close to a biblical anthropology? No one does good. No, not one. Dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. If you get that figured out, there's no other way to be saved other than by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. I mean, it just solves everything. Back to what he was saying. (laughs) Pretty interesting too, by the way, I should just add before we move to the next verse, that yeah, it makes sense that Abraham isn't justified by obeying the Mosaic law, given the fact that the Mosaic law hadn't been given yet. But maybe that's for another discussion. (laughs) Kind of interesting. Uh, Well, it gets a little bit more polemical, if that's possible. And uh, if there's ever a time to get more negative, it's in verse 14, because the gospel is at stake. In verse 14 it says, For if... For the sake of argument, okay, let's just argue this out. For, for if, in verse 14, those who are of the law, we, we know that they don't actually keep the law because they can't in light of Romans 1, 2, and 3, but they say they're going to, they do externally. So, so if, just for the sake of argument, those who are of the law, they, they say that are law keepers, if they are heirs, heirs of salvation and all that it entails, check out the end of verse 14. Faith is made void and the promise is nullified or worthless. I think he's kind of picking a fight. (laughs) He's using abrasive language. Um, He's calling people stupid. He's saying this is a big deal. Let me just if with you a bit, is what he's saying. Let's just do this on a hypothetical level. And again, I underline for the sake of seeing the contrast, law... And faith, if it is by law that we're heirs, if it is by law that we get the righteousness that we des- that we need, if it is by law which is an absolute impossibility, it can't be that but if it is that way, then faith and righteousness through faith is null and void. And that's a big deal because God has said in His Word, as we've already seen in Genesis, the way to get righteousness, the righteousness you need, is by faith. So if you want to play games here is what he's saying, and you want to say righteousness is by works, righteousness is by obeying God's law, and that's how you earn favor with God, you know what you just did? You just made faith, which is what God said, null and void. I'm calling you stupid because you call God stupid. This is, this is a big issue. In a sense, how dare you do that? But just know the logic of what you're doing. As soon as you say, I can achieve the favor of God, you have made what God says, which is a favor with God through faith is null and void. And on a practical level, when you hear people talk about the gospel and it is faith, yes, and what you do, if it is grace, yes, and something that is done, you know what? You just need to have a screaming in your mind, just echoing in your mind. You need to hear the two words null and void. Null and void is what you need to be hearing. Because by them suggesting what they're suggesting, they are saying what God has said is disqualified. Because it can't be both ways. It can't be both ways. It doesn't work. He's not allowing for any sense of pluralism here. And and both systems work because you know what? A lot of different roads lead to God. No, he's not doing that. And if you're thinking, I mean, just perish the thought, but if you're thinking that somehow you can receive the promises of God through obeying God's law... Uh, there's a verse for you, and it's the next verse. Verse 15 says, For the law brings about wrath. Zing! <laughs> That's what that is. That's a zinger for you. Oh, oh, there's a promise for you, all right. Those of you who think you can earn your way to God, and somehow you play a part in it, it's not only by faith. Yeah, there's a big, fat promise for you. The law brings wrath. There's your promise. You know, that's a death blow. There's never a possibility that law could ever get you to God. It just can't happen because you're a sinner. Romans 1, 2, and 3. So you want law? You get wrath. Because you could never be righteous enough. How about just hypothetically right now if you could live a perfectly righteous life? which can't happen, we'll get there in Romans 5, it can't be, even if you did all the externals right, you can't live a perfectly righteous life, but just hypothetically, if you could, you've got past unrighteousness to deal with. It can't be, there's no way, the, the only way, if you want to deal with God on the basis of law, it is lights out for Pat it's only going to lead to one thing and that's wrath because we've got a righteous God. Remember all the stuff we've been learning in Romans 1, 2, 3. He is righteous. He is just. He is fair. And according to His righteous and just fair rules and He has the right to make the rules because He's the Creator, the wages of sin is death. If you want to play games with God and say let's do this based upon law? You're smoked. You don't want that. You don't want that at all. and it's good news because he's telling us ahead of time he's telling us this ahead of time so perhaps by the grace of God we would get our grubby mitts off of the glory of God and that we would see that Christ is the object of all of our devotion and worship because he is our righteousness not the law the law is going to bring judgment now let's keep reading you need righteousness like Abraham got righteousness which comes through faith And so in verse 15, he goes on to say, having said that the law brings about wrath, he says, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. I like that. I like that a lot. Take that verse and just remove it from its context and you'll be confused. There's other things to be said about the law of God. We've talked about the law of God even already in Romans. But keep it in the context and the flow, and you'll like that verse. Read it again. But where there is no law, there is no violation. And the violation is tied to wrath right at the beginning. That is how I want to do business with God. That is how Abraham did business with God, spiritual business. Get me as far away as possible from law. I don't, I don't want law anywhere even close to me when it comes to my dealings with God. God, I need you. I need your righteousness. I, there's only one way I could ever get it. You keep the law away from me. I need your righteousness. It comes to me not by anything I do. It comes to me by faith. And so if I can get myself away from the law, there's no violation and there's no wrath. Now, again, we could talk at length about how the law does need to be satisfied. Well, then we talk about what we've talked about in chapter 3 and even in chapter 4, I believe, about Christ and His righteousness and coming and obeying the law perfectly on our behalf and then satisfying the wrath of God, which also satisfies the just wrath of God. Yeah, you, 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 there's more to be said about the law. But here in this passage, if you're dealing with God based upon faith and faith alone alone, you have no dealings with God when it comes to salvation, dealing with the law, and that's what you want. If verse 15 is still difficult for you to understand, draw a line or make an arrow or something to verse 13. Keep 13 and 15 together, and it will help verse 15 to make sense. I say that because I probably read verse 15 I don't know how many times. And couldn't get my mind around it. And then you keep it in context and keep it in flow. Verse 13 says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law. See, he was was ten time zones away from the law. But through the righteousness of faith. Not law, but faith. I need to deal with God not on the basis of law, away from law, but based upon faith. That's all he's saying then it makes more sense to us keep law out of your dealings with god drawing out the logic even more it gets pretty thick verse 16 comes as, as number one a rushed sentence in greek you might even see it in, in your translation because there's a of abbreviated words but i think the idea is paul's wanting us to, to feel the the intensity of this and the drama of this and the passion of this these are the most important things imaginable you got to get this If you get anything, make sure you get this. Taking the italicized words out doesn't quite catch it, but I'm going to do that in the New American Standard that I'm reading from. For this reason, by faith, in order that, in accordance with grace. It doesn't really flow. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Maybe you add the italicized words and it helps it flow a little bit better. But the idea is, you've got it by faith, in order that it may be by grace. He's linking faith... With grace, and, and he does it in a great way. Please get this. Okay, we're going to go to the wall for it, being by grace alone. Because if it's by grace alone, then it truly legitimately legitimately is by grace alone. you got to have those together. This becomes important because, again, dishonest, misled, misguided, who knows what you want to call them, religious leaders sometimes hijack Biblical words, and they make them mean other things. And so we talk to people who talk about grace. God gives you the grace to obey Him and gain your justification. That's when Scooby Doo goes, hmm? <laughs> "I don't what." And they use words like faith. God's grace through faith. Oh, in Jesus. But you do a little investigating and you do a little questioning and you do a little prodding just to find out what do you mean by these words grace and faith and Christ. And what you find is they won't dare say it is only through faith. Or it is only by grace. Or it is only by Christ. And I love it where Paul takes these two realities and he forges them together in the same verse and he in effect says, you want to bet? If it's by faith and truly and genuinely and only by faith, then it is by grace. Think about that. That's what he's saying. If it is truly and genuinely, purely by faith, then it is genuinely, truly, purely by grace. It is really grace. With that in your mind, here's what it's not. It's not faith. Oh, yes, we all know Abraham's faith. It says it had faith. It's right there in the Bible. But he also did the right thing and earned the favor of God. By believing and doing, he was justified. That's faith and obedience or works And it's not grace. Just think about it. Grace is a gift. You do nothing. We say grace is a free gift. Well, that's a redundancy. Just because we're trying to make the point. Grace is free. Grace is a gift. You do nothing to earn grace. And so if it is faith and works is grace, you go, hmm? You go, null and void. Right? If it's only by faith, then it really can be genuine grace. If it's faith and what we do, it's not grace. It's not grace. And then ultimately, it's not all of Christ. Now let's think this through a little bit more. How do I... Let's think about this as Christians. Okay. God has His Son die for me in my place, we'd say, that's grace. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn that. So it's all Christ in His righteousness, and it's only by grace that He has Him come. Now the big question is, how do I appropriate it? How do I make it personal? How do, how, how do I make Jesus' death effectual for me, if you want to use a more profound word? We would say, in light of Romans, by faith alone right trust dependence nothing i'm really doing because if it is by faith and trying to keep the commandments it's not by grace it's by a partnership it's not grace though and so that's why romans has been so clear and that's why christians from now for a long time taking romans seriously grace alone faith alone Christ alone, I love verse 16, forged together by faith in order that it may be in accordance to grace, because otherwise it can't be. Verse 16 goes on to say, uh, wonderfully, so that, there are so many so that's in here. I mean, I didn't have very much fun studying this week. Uh, I may have had some struggles in my sanctification this week. It's kind of difficult to do. You're studying the Bible, and uh, it's not good to study the Bible with a bad attitude part of the time. And uh, the studying of the Bible is supposed to sanctify you, but you're like, I'm trying to follow the train of thought. I'm, you've got to walk away. But he's heaping idea upon idea upon idea upon idea, no doubt, so I pray when I study. <laughs> but, but more seriously, so that we can see that th- th- this is not an afterthought. This is not shallow. This is well thought out. This is deep. This is profound. You've got to get this. So he's going to add another so that in verse 16, so that the promise, included in the promise is going to be all the blessings of salvation and more, so that the promise will be guaranteed. He uses a good legal term from that culture. It is guaranteed. And I have to insert, remember where you have a religion, even if they're posing as Christian, that says it's By faith plus what you do, by grace plus what you do, in Christ plus what you do, there are no guarantees in any such system. It's the treadmill system. And here, if it's only by grace and only through faith and only in Christ, I love it that he says, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants this is fantastic, not only to those who are of the law, believing Jews in this context, I think, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, even Gentiles, who, who is the father of us all, Jew and Gentile, all believers, are, are, are tied in with Abraham as our father. And in good Pauline fashion, he gives text to to give support. Old Testament quotation in verse 17 as it is written. Genesis 17.5. A father of many nations I have made you. Notice God says I have made you. Even God is the one acting there in the presence of him whom he believed. Now at this point in time I've got two huge questions. (laughs) Number one is not so huge but it's still huge. How could Abraham how could Abraham be the father of many nations and not just the Jews? I mean, that, that, that's pretty big. How could that be? I mean, I historically think of Abraham as tied to, tied to the Jews. How could he be the father of both? And the next big question, which is bigger, how could righteousness come to Abraham even though he wasn't righteous? How in the world could Abraham have righteousness before God given to him even though he wasn't righteous? How could this be? And I love the next part. I'm going to take out the italicized word. Verse 17. What does it say? God. There's your answer. How could people who are sinful be declared righteous and be credited with righteousness? How could He be the Father of many nations? This is a lot to get my mind around. How in the world could this be? And the answer is God. That's the answer. God is the one. And then he explains why he could say such a thing. Who gives life to the dead? Okay, I guess we are talking about God here. And not only that, who and calls into being that which is, does does not exist. He creates ex nihilo just by saying it. Hey, I just can't fathom how in the world God could do this through Abraham, a sinner. And I just can't fathom how Abraham, a sinner, could have righteousness in the eyes of God and and how he could have it by faith. It sure seems to me that he should actually have to work for it. How could this be? God. Oh, by the way, let me remind you the God who raises the dead. (laughs) Let me remind you the God who creates ex nihilo speaks and it's done. You see where all of this is driving? Where all of this is driving is back to the supreme object of all of our affection and all of our devotion and all of our attention. All of this is driving us back to God. All of this is driving us back to that place where we say salvation is of the Lord salvation is not by works in any way, shape, or form. Salvation is based solely upon God and His wonderful love and His great grace that motivated Him to send His great Son to live for us and to die for us and to rise for us. God! That is how I can have righteousness even though I have none. I have it based upon the work of His Son. God gets the credit for that. It reminds me of Bach. Bach, we're told at the end of his music would always write S-D-G from the Latin Soli Deo Gloria to God alone be the glory. Yeah, that's right. You know, the gospel we preach, we proclaim, we herald as a church should have S D. G written all over it and the gospel that you believe should have sdg written all over it and the gospel that you proclaim whether it's here in this place in a different country downtown on a campus wherever it should have sdg, SDG soli deo gloria all over it and the only way that that is possible is if that gospel is a gospel that says God saves sinners by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And then we know soli deo gloria. There is no boasting, right? Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 3, because our boasting is only in him and it is to God alone be the glory. Now I had two conclusions today. That was the positive one, and I wanted to end on the positive one. I really did. In fact, I did it out of order. But it flowed better there, so now I'm going to give you my second conclusion. (laughs) I hate to end on a negative, but what do I say? I have nothing to say. I have no excuse. I stand condemned before you. (laughs) Should have been more creative. Just one more thing about all of this. You read Romans 1 to 4. You read Romans 4, and you perhaps even do what I've done, and I've highlighted every time it talks about faith or belief or believes. And, and, and you say, How could it be any more clear? I mean, it just doesn't get any clearer than this. Surely, every at least who says they're a Christian believes this and then a religious leader leading many 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 people using the name Christian says did these works of did these works speaking of Abraham's works did these works play a role in his justification answer according to the Bible yes a different religion claiming the name Christian if we obey the commandments we'll have peace and happiness or one of their most decorated leaders this is from their website when asked over and over again what was his philosophy of life what really made him tick what was he all about that he wants everyone to know about him quote I work as hard as I can and do everything within my power And I try to keep the commandments. Then I let the Lord make up the difference. End of quote. And I say, what kind of medication were you on when you read Romans? Right? I mean, somebody tricked you. Were you blind and somebody snuck a different Braille Bible to you? what in the cotton picking world? Right? I mean, you read Romans 4, and it's, I just don't get it. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4. And even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And now I'm even more burdened for people. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they will not see the glory of Christ. Now I have a better understanding of why they read Romans 4 and conclude the exact opposite of what it says. Because it's a spiritual matter. Not only are they themselves sinners in their hearts, but they've gotten a double whammy, if you will. Their own sin is clouding their mind. And then Satan blinds their minds. So it makes me want to preach the gospel. Because I know, even though God is the only one who can who can open their eyes and take away the blindfold and give them a new heart. I know that God works through means. According to Romans chapter 10, how will they hear without a preacher? So I want to and I want you to be faithful at proclaiming the truth of the gospel, knowing that if if they're ever going to believe, if the if the, if the, if the mask is ever going to be torn from their eyes, if God sees fit to do that, which only He can do, It is going to be through the gospel. So we keep proclaiming. We keep preaching. We keep praying. And finally, let me say, I need to apologize. For years now, I've been saying Romans 1, 2, and 3 is about sin and depravity. Chapter 4 is about salvation. Chapter 5 is about salvation. (laughs) I still think that's true. But, you know, I, I have to add chapter 4 now to my list of... Chapters that are about depravity and sin. Because it serves as a great example of a text that couldn't be clearer. And yet over and over and over again, people conclude the exact opposite of what it says. And so Romans 4 shows us just how sinful we are as depraved human beings apart from God's sovereign intervening grace. And so we pray, and so we preach, and so we live for the gospel. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for Romans, and thank you for the fact that salvation is of the Lord, and it's not because we're smart, and it's not because we somehow are going to work hard. It's only by your grace. And for that matter, none of us here should even believe it because we too are sinful and we too had our minds blinded by satan and for whatever reason we don't even know why ultimately you know why ultimately it's for your your good pleasure you have chosen to to remove masks you've chosen to give hearts and we're really 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 thankful help us to praise christ and only christ for our salvation and help us also god to be faithful speaking the truth about Christ to those who are around us, praying all along for you to work supernaturally in their lives so that they could see the excellency of the glory of Christ. In His name we pray, amen.